Welcome to the Money Wise Women Show, brought to you by MoneyMorphosis.com. Are you ready to be inspired to upgrade your financial skills? Listen to feminine leaders sharing practical advice and valuable insights. Shift your money mindset, improve communication skills, and learn financial management tips. Although we do not provide investment advice, you can check out MoneyMorphosis.com. That's Money-M-O-R-P-H-O-S-I-S.com to find simple ways to boost your true wealth. Hello, it's Crystal Arnold, your hostess of Money Wise Women and founder of Money Morphosis. And you may not know, I am also um, an economist. And so there are, uh, it's a very male dominated field. And I was um, super excited to um, come across our guest today, Claire Brown, who is um, an economics professor at UC Berkeley in uh, California. And uh, just really feel like there is uh, a, a, um, a certain perspective that women um, are bringing forth in, in these fields of money, in particular in economics. Because if we think about it for a moment, the economy is really about how we care for one another. And uh, it's, it's how we exchange our, our um, goods and services to meet other people's needs. And so to really bring in a more holistic sense of, of what is most valuable, um, beyond what is measured by money, uh, I feel like a lot of people are really looking at um, what what does bring me greater joy. How do I orient my life towards not just consuming more and having more material goods and having more money in my bank account, but but what is the quality of life that would bring me greater satisfaction and peace and harmony in my life? And I, I see it again and again as people are able to prioritize their lives and really um, reorient to, to what's important. There is a great uh, sense of peace and, and connection and belonging that can really arise. And, uh, and this is what I love about um, talking with Claire um, leading up to the show here is, is the way that she integrates the, the rational and the intuitive and spiritual uh, aspects of, of life and wealth and money and, and the way that she is really has done a lot of innovative um, cross-disciplinary work in, in the university and, and really been a pioneer uh, in, in a lot of ways. So uh, super excited to have her here and inspire all of you um, with her wisdom today. So let me tell you a little bit more about Claire. So Claire Brown is, as I said, Professor of Economics and Director of the Center for Work, Technology and Society and past Director of the Institute of Industrial Relations at the University of California, Berkeley. And she's published a lot of research on aspects of how economies function, including development engineering, high-tech industries, standards of living, and discrimination. 
And today, Claire works on how the economic system can provide comfortable, meaningful lives to all people in a sustainable world. Yes, thank you, Claire. That's really what we are aiming for. Um, yeah, so her graduate students in development engineering work on technologies to improve people's lives in low-income low regions, and her undergraduate students apply Buddhist economics to evaluate financial risk of fossil fuel companies um, in order to push for more fossil-free public pension portfolios. Wow, I mean, this is like cutting edge integrative work to really um, create options for people to align their values uh, with their money. And, uh, you know, with her students, she's also developed a holistic measure of economic performance based on the quality of life in California. And this index integrates things like inequality, environmental degradation, non-market activities, and consumption to provide a more inclusive measurement um, around sustainable economic performance. And so I'm not surprised that she was honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award for contributions to improving workers' lives by the Labor and Employment Research Association. And uh, she also practices Tibetan Buddhism. And uh, her book is, um, is uh, called Buddhist Economics. And the subtitle is fantastic. It is, um, uh, let's see. Oh, it's about um, the Buddh Buddhist economics, an enlightened approach to the dismal science. I thought that was so perfect because so often people think of economics as, as boring and and it was called the dismal science. So let's bring some life back into that and our own feminine wisdom here today with Claire. Uh, thanks for joining us, Claire. I'd love to uh, begin just with um, hearing some more from you about what what excites you most about the work that you do. Oh, Crystal, it's wonderful to be on your podcast and to talk about things that are really, really important and dear to me. So what excites me is actually having discussions about how we can live more meaningful lives and create an economy that we want and desire. Um, because we know, economists, we know all the policies to actually share prosperity and reduce inequality. We know from the ecologist how to get rid of fossil fuel and live in a clean, pollution-free environment. And we know um, from many different spiritual leaders how to care for the human spirit. You certainly don't have to be Buddhist. You don't even have to care about any particular religion. But most everybody on your show, I bet, cares about the human spirit and the way we're living and caring for each other as well as the earth. So what really excites me is when I hear from listeners or readers, they, they'll write me back, and, and, um, and then I see reactions, too, around the world of saying, yes, yes, this is what we want. We know we want an economy that brings us together with shared prosperity. We care for the earth, and we care for the human spirit. And, and that really excites me because it means we're making a better world. 
Yes. Yes, it really is. Um, I, I'm quite, I call myself a realistic optimist. I, I really have talked with so many people and women in particular leading, um, you know, a variety of movements for a better quality of life and uh, an opportunity in this transitionary time, as everyone's probably aware, things are changing rapidly in our society, in our global economy, politically. Um, I, I'd love to, yeah, just um, hear what, what are some opportunities that you see and some things that, that give you hope and, and inspire you around this new, new economic movement? Well, there, you know, there's so much going on. Um, it's hard to say, but for example, my book draws upon all the work, like of Amartya Sen and and other Nobel laureates, that say, "Look, we know how to reduce inequality. We really do know how to do that." The U.S. isn't doing it, but they're doing it in Europe, and they've made great strides in caring for children and and making everyone's life better. And the minute you put up a really good social safety net all of a sudden you find people much more willing to take chances about trying new things, um, about investing in, in new ideas, so that we get, we, once you get rid of fear, then women especially are much more able to take risk and to try new things, both for, for themselves and, and for their companies and for their communities. And, so that's really important. That's a really positive movement that's going on. Hmm. Although yeah. it's not going on enough in the U.S. It's really Europe. Europe is our leader in a lot of this. Right, right. Um, yeah, there's clearly a lot of room for innovation in, in this arena here in America and a lot of need. Um, I, I'd love to hear more like about your own personal money story and what brought you to um, to one becoming an, an economics professor and then um, secondly writing the book well I was in graduate school in the 70s and there was a lot going on we'd, we'd already had the women's movement and things were getting much better for women we were really fighting discrimination in a way that was showing improvement Unfortunately, we were also getting involved with the Vietnam War, and, and that really was not a positive approach. That was actually causing slowdown in a lot of the good things. But as a young person, I became an economist. Actually, everybody I know who became an economist wanted to help the world. And I especially wanted to continue really reducing discrimination against women and minorities in the labor market. And so that's what I focused on. My thesis was on that. And I learned a lot, and I um, then went on to work a lot on inequality, how to reduce inequality. But unfortunately, Ronald Reagan was elected in the 80s, and he started just reducing progressive taxes and get, getting rid of social programs. And all of a sudden, inequality started going up. Now, a lot of your young listeners won't realize that, um, Whenever I tell my students, I say, my gosh, that happened in the, the 80s. I said, yeah, we've had four decades of 
greatly increasing inequality, but it started with getting rid of progressive taxes in the 80s with Reagan, and it continued on. So all of a sudden, instead of reducing inequality, which me and my colleagues were all trying to do, all of a sudden we watched inequality skyrocket. So in some sense, politics really trumped economics, and we failed. We We totally failed. So it's really good, even though the current tax reform bill is once again going to increase inequality in the U.S., they've made great strides in other countries to really say, you know, we we know we need good social programs, we need a good safety net, we need progressive taxes to pay for this. And so inequality has improved in other places, even though it hasn't in the U.S. Um, so we're, we're still sort of waiting there. But... Let let me just say all of this, and one of the things I love about your program of empowering women and being money-wise is in all of this, I keep coming back to the Buddhist idea of we have inner wealth, we have outer wealth, and we want both. So uh, I love the way you focus on both of those, that our outer wealth is we want a good standard of living. We want to care for our families and for our communities, but we also want to care for our human spirit, the inner wealth. And you need both. You don't want just one or the other, but they actually go well together. Hmm. Oh, I so agree. Um, and, and there really is a more holistic sense of well-being and wealth um, that that really comes from cultivating both of those um, at the same time. Um, t- tell me more about what is in your um, what is in your book and how you came to kind of um, marry, you know, these uh, Buddhism and economics, two things which we don't often see in the same sentence, let alone the same book. Right, right. Well, what's also really important is a sustainable economy where we care for the earth. We don't we don't see natural resources as something we just consume and degrade, but we actually realize that the well-being of the environment is our well-being over time. And so I became really aware of our interdependence with the environment with Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth. And so I saw that movie and I rushed home to take my carbon footprint. And I encourage everyone, take your carbon footprint. You'll learn a lot if you haven't done it. It's actually fascinating. And you can find it online. There there are a few of them. So I go home, and I take my carbon footprint. And I do so well on, um, you know, recycling and composting and keeping the the heater low and, um, (laughs) like, uh, driving in a really efficient hybrid and I was so proud of myself I was just patting myself all over the back and then I got to airplane travel and Mm. I blew it I went from being great to being terrible really Mm. awful and that was an eye-opener I said you know I am so clueless about what's really causing carbon emissions and I'm clueless about traveling that was mostly related to work. I was doing a lot of uh, work with engineers on semiconductors, no less. We were traveling all over, and I stopped, and I said, you know what? We don't need to fly to all these places. We're going to learn how to do telephone video interviews. Hmm. 
And at first they weren't sure. But actually the companies and the engineers were great at it. They taught us. And we really cut out flying as much as we could. Um, but that was just because I started to learn about climate change and global warming. And that really changed the way I thought about economics in a in a powerful way. I'd already seen inequality going up. Now I saw we were killing the earth with all our carbon emissions and our fossil fuel industry. And I started looking at the developing world who all, you know, they really do need to improve their standard of living and they only see it through a fossil fuel economy. And so we had to start totally rethinking, oh, how can we all live together on this planet and not kill it? So that was one thing. And then the other factor, as you already mentioned, is I'm a Tibetan Buddhist and I've practiced for a long time. And I thought, well, also, we don't just want to care for the planet and for each other, but we actually do want to care for our own inner wealth or human spirit. And so I worked a lot on how to uh, sort of get rid of greed and ignorance and hatred and all our daily bad habits and grow more in compassion and an open heart and loving kindness. And that's been really meaningful to me. It's really helped me um, feel happier and much better in my life. Hmm. Yes. And um, what I love, too, is uh, you shared with me a, a discussion guide so people who read the book can get together and talk about it. And uh, I have found so much power in people coming together and sharing in groups about money because it's such a taboo topic and so many people um, just uh, feel such relief when they can finally hear other people's money stories and share their own struggles and um, challenges with it. And so just wanted to hear um, your perspective on, on, you know, why you created that reading group format and, and why it is so powerful to, to talk about money more openly. Yes, I I find coming together and talking with each other really powerful on any topic, but especially the ones you mentioned that are taboo. And those include definitely money and consumption and also the intimate topics like how to create a meaningful life. What does that really mean? How did you do it? Um, and so some of the topics are embarrassing, but some of them are actually we don't even know the answers, but we want to just explore together. And so, for example, when I talk to women about my book, a lot of them, and especially also my students, they'll say this, they'll say, you know what, I was doing way too much shopping, way too much, and I'd buy all this stuff, and then I'd bring it home and throw it in the closet and wonder why in the world did I buy that stuff? And I had one student who loves shoes, and she'd say, I'd go out, and every time Macy's had a big sale, I'd go buy some shoes, bring them home, stuff them in my closet. I had way too many shoes. And I said, well, how did how did thinking about sort of putting it into a broader context of creating a meaningful life work? And she said, well, here's what happened. I went to Macy's to the shoe sale. 
I was all excited. I couldn't wait. And I started finding beautiful shoes, and I'd pick them up and admire them and try them on. But when it came time to buy the pair to take home, I looked at all and I said, you know what? I don't really want to buy any of these shoes. I had a great time shopping, and now I'm going to go home and not throw anything more into my closet. In fact, I might just go home and clear out some shoes and give them away because they're hardly worn. And she said, you know, I just felt so much better because I thought I finally broke this habit that I had to go buy shoes and that I could find other ways to think about life. And she said, I enjoyed shopping. It was fun. Next time I want to take a friend and make it a real outing and I don't have to buy anything. I just can enjoy life and feel much better about creating experiences and just not buying shoes. So I thought that was a great example of someone who really went from a closet full to a mindful way of thinking. Hmm. Oh, yeah. that's. I, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to that. Uh, there is so much pressure in mainstream media to consume more and and this feeling of not enough over the last, you know, uh, couple generations has really been sold to us that we are primarily consumers and and this is, you know, that we're always looking for the next thing to buy to to fill this emptiness that maybe people feel this isolation or loneliness or um whatever it is, you know, to to feel that and Anything else that Buddhism says around, um, I think I've called it the, uh, I've heard it called the hungry ghost, like the feeling of never enough and and insatiable hunger. Um, What would you like to share about that? Yes, because that's actually quite, the way you stated it, Crystal, was beautiful. It really was the essence of how we have this thinking that if we run out and buy things, we'll be happier. That's the free market model. That's what we're told by the advertisers and by the social norms. are really pressured to consume. And we do find that it does make us happier. We get a little bleak, but hardly for very long. And then after that, we actually go back to our former level of happiness or unhappiness. In fact, sometimes we become even less happy because we say, oh, man, I bought this, I don't really want it, or did I buy the wrong thing, or, oh, what did my neighbor buy? And We get into these invidious comparisons that make us really suffer. And so the other word that sociologists use is conspicuous consumption, and that's actually been shown to make people suffer over time, that the problem is with conspicuous consumption, we we end up separating ourselves. So we buy luxuries to point out, oh, look how great I am. Look, look how terrific I am. Look how much better I am. And then we feel disconnected from other people in the community, and it's not making us happy. In fact, it's making us unhappy. And so we look at Buddhist economics, which says, you want to be happy? What makes you happy? okay, here's what makes you happy. And the neuroscientists have confirmed this with studying human brain waves and and looking at how people respond. So what makes you happy is, actually we call it Aristotelian happiness. It is actually going out and helping other people makes you happy 
And then the other thing that makes you happy is having good experiences with other people, friends, relatives, family. So you can help other people. You can go out and have great experiences, even just a wonderful family dinner. Um, And I asked my students, what makes you happy? And this was before we talked about what I just said. And they came back, they brought in their written reports, and I read them and I read them. It was amazing. They all talked about experiences with friends. Um, They talked about talking to their families on the phone or FaceTime. They talked about, uh, they actually talked about doing volunteer work and, and helping children with their schoolwork. I got all kinds of wonderful reports. One boy talked about playing video games that made him happy. Um, And one person wrote about eating a great dinner, which I couldn't tell if that was with other people or not. So, Mm. but like this idea of consumerism didn't appear. And first of all, that made me really happy because I thought, wow, these students are already on a good path. They already understand how to be happy um, within their school environment. I hope they carry it with them when they leave the university. Uh, because we we do know that buying things doesn't make you happy for very long and that living a worthy life, helping others, contributing to the community actually makes you really satisfied and happy with your life. And we can all do that. Yeah. Yeah, so important to reassess, you know, individually in in our families and communities, what what is most essential and how can we simplify and and find greater joy in in what we do have. And it's been this fascinating um thing of uh aggrandizing the the w- uber wealthy. You know, we've seen the wealth inequality um increasing as as you said and um there at the same time, you know, people are just kind of uh, idolizing the, the super wealthy. There was a great coffee table book that came out last year. Lauren Greenfield wrote Generation Wealth and took pictures from um, well, a lot in Southern California, but also in China and uh, uh, Dubai and all these areas and, and just how, um, you know, there was part about how people are just emulating the 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 wealth and yet at the same time falling into deeper and deeper deeper impoverishment of of the soul basically that um yeah there's there's a lot of suffering um from from this kind of impoverishment and uh such a fascinating time isn't it yes because we we do want to have wisdom, and often people say to me, what's wisdom? And so I, everything that you're saying makes sense, but there's several questions come up. One is like, what is wisdom? And actually wisdom is really just knowing yourself and hmm. what you want and having gratitude for all you have. It's not any kind of rocket science. It's like, Mm-hmm. Wisdom is just understanding the true reality of here's who I am, here's how I fit into the world, and here's how I can help others. And so, like a lot of the women listening in, already are taking care of their families and and working hard and taking care of communities. Women know how to care. We know how to care for other people. 
And so we're somewhat at an advantage, I think, in that it's easier for us to tie into this true wisdom. Where I think it's hard for us is making a balanced life because we're all overwhelmed. Uh, When I talk to young mothers especially, and I remember when I was raising young kids, I never had enough time. It was just impossible. Um, I was feeling overwhelmed. And so what I see then is that once, once young mothers feel overwhelmed, then they really are not very happy. And so they say, what can we do? I said, well, you know, I think we need to talk about how can you create more time in your life that's important to you. And so one of the things I learned as a young mother is I learned how to say no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd get requests at work for, to do extra work, or I'd get requests to do things in my neighborhood or community that I didn't care about or didn't want to do. It wasn't what I wanted to do, but I didn't know how to say no. I thought, oh, well, of course I can do that, but it wasn't what I should be doing. I really decided i got to learn how to think what's really important to me, write it down, and then prioritize my time on that. And I slowly, you know, I didn't learn how to say no overnight. <laughs> it, took, it took some training. Um, but one of the nice things about Buddhist economics is a focus on, oh, we train our minds. We really do have to work on training our minds on finding out who we are and living a balanced life. So one of the things that I think young mothers can do every time they get a request for something is they, in economics we call it the opportunity cost, will say, oh, what am I giving up to do this? And the minute you say that, you say, oh, of course I'm giving up quality time with my kids. Oh, do I, is, this, is this worth giving up quality time with my kids? And if the answer is no, then you say no. You say no. I'm sorry. Thank you for asking me. Thank you for thinking of me, but I'm not the right person for that right now. Um, and then find ways to free up more time to do the things you care about. And it can even be going to the art studio and taking an art class. It could be going out and, and working in your garden. It can be playing a game with your kids. It can be walking in the park with your dog. It can be anything as long as it's something that you were choosing and thinking about and that it makes you feel better because you really do need to find ways to not feel overwhelmed, which is really hard to do in today's life. Hmm. Oh, I love that. Just really practical, doable advice that people can integrate into their daily lives today. Um, yeah, I think that's really important, prioritizing, you know, having having the quiet time and space to really tap into our own intuition, our own uh, feelings and opinions, because I know, especially the first five years after having my kids, um, who are four and seven now, I was just so absorbed in their needs that it was really hard to find out what I was needing and how to prioritize myself. And so I think that really is important is, is having the, the spaciousness and, and that time alone with your 
itself, whether it's in meditation or walking in the woods or however people connect with themselves to, to really get clear on what's most important and what their own needs are. That's right. And I think it does really help if we ask ourselves, oh, what am I not doing right now that I need to spend more time doing? Because that's the opportunity cost again. And to just keep that in mind, say, oh, here's something I'd like to be able to do today. And Mm -hmm. keep that in mind and think about, oh, how can I make that happen? Um, Because it will allow us to cut back on things that we don't really care as much about and make the space for the things we really do care about and want to do. Um, Well, for me, I have a dog, so I love having a dog. I have to take my dog for a walk. It's like no no choice there. Um, but if I didn't have a dog, I wonder what I would do. It's like, whoops. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and um, for me, it's also not spending too much time reading the news. Now, other people may not have that problem. I'm a news junkie. I spend too much time reading the news. And I have to think, what else would I rather be doing? You know what? I would rather actually, I'm not staying in touch with a few friends. I want to get off the stupid news and call a friend or two. And Mm -hmm. when I do that, I feel so much happier and so much better. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, um, it was me not calling my friends because I was reading, spending too much time online reading news, which was not really great news, right? (laughs) And I knew way more news than I needed to know. So I wasn't giving up anything to gain a lot. And mm. so I keep trying to juggle things around to do what's important to me. Mm. It makes me think of, you know, our language and we say pay attention. And I see that attention is one of our greatest commodities, currencies that we have is where is your attention going? Where is it leaking towards things that don't nourish you, that don't return your investment um, and and things like that? Um, Let's take a quick break here, and then uh, when we come back, we can talk more about the book and as well some of these innovative uh, programs that you've uh, been part of. So we'll be back in just a minute. Do you get choked up and flushed talking about money? Don't let fear and shame stop you from sharing your value. Speak up, sister. Find out how to boost your financial communication skills at www.findyourmoneyvoice.com Perhaps you're like Gwen, a budding, creative entrepreneur who wants to provide for her family, but she has a tough time expressing her needs. She chronically undercharges and lays awake at night with money stress. With Crystal's Find Your Money Voice training, she found renewed confidence speaking her self-worth. Transform beliefs, behaviors, and skills with money. With greater clarity and focus, Gwen more confidently negotiated solid agreements and increased her business earnings with the trainings found at findyourmoneyvoice.com. We are back with Claire Brown, um, the author of Buddhist Economics. 
And uh, man, just talking about uh, great practical things people can do to prioritize their time, their attention, their money, and really how to create a more satisfying uh, life. And um, I'd love to hear more um, about about what what's in the book and what people um, can really expect from from reading it. I think there's eight steps um, that you go through there. And so tell me a little bit more about, um, yeah, what people could expect in the book. Okay. Well, actually, you learn a lot of economics, although everyone says, I didn't know I was learning so much economics. But now I actually realize all these ways the economic forces are in my life and, and to work with them. But you also learn a lot about integrating the spiritual life into your economic life, which helps a lot, I think. Um, and so, like, one of the things that women come away from reading the book say to me, you know, I'm great at caring for other people. I'm really good at that. My family, my friends, my community. I'm not so good at caring for myself. And I realized from your reading your book that actually I have to start with me. I have to care for me, truly love and care for me in order to be the person I want to be and to really care for others. So uh, people will start some, some meditation, some mindfulness sitting, although you don't have to. You can do it in lots of different ways as long as the main thing is you drop criticizing and judging yourself. It just doesn't help you at all. It actually causes you to suffer. And and so one of the big lessons of Buddhist economics is here's how not to suffer. Um, everybody suffers, but you don't have to. And so you start with just deciding that, you know what, You're, everything about you is just fine. That you, you have everything you need as a person that doesn't mean we can't do better or be better, but we start off with our basic goodness. And then we say, okay, you don't sit there and fret over some stupid thing you did this morning. That's beyond. That's past. That's over. And you don't sit there and fret about, oh, here's my to-do list for the afternoon. I have 25 things to do. And, and sit there fretting over them either because they'll get the ones that need to get done are going to get done. So what you really do want to do is focus on, okay, right now I'm fine. The world is around me is fine. And here's what I'm going to be doing right now that's important, and I'll get it done. Because the minute, what I've learned is that the minute I focus on exactly what I'm doing, really put all my energy into it, first of all, it gets done, and it gets done well, and it gets done more quickly, and then I move on to the next thing that I want to do and focus on doing that. And I just learned, although I'm still learning, I'm still working on it, to quit fretting over what's gone on already or what might happen in the future. And it's really, really a wonderful lesson. In, in Buddhism, they call it the two arrows. And the two arrows is a great story. It's a sutra that it has a great lesson in it. So we all get hit by an arrow. All the time we can get hit by an arrow. People can say nasty things or hurt us. People, um, or we can hurt other people by getting angry or get a, be, being upset. So we shoot an arrow, and that arrow actually hurts us. The first arrow 
hurts us. And we think, oh, what should, how should I respond to that? Well, if somebody hurt us, then we basically just let go of it. Like, how important is it? It's probably not really very important at all. We just got our feelings hurt or our egos hurt or whatever. And if we hurt someone else, we say, oh, I shouldn't have done that. That was too bad. We make amends if we can. But you don't shoot the second arrow. The second arrow is sitting there beating up on ourselves um, for whatever we did wrong or getting really, really angry and enraged at the other person for what they did. That second arrow really hurts us, but we didn't need to shoot it. We didn't need to get hit by the second arrow. We didn't need to waste any time getting angry and upset at a friend, and we certainly didn't need to do anything um, to hurt ourselves and be self-critical once we've made amends. So so the, one of the great lessons of Buddhist economics is how to care for yourself and really focus on and, and engage in all the things you want to do, and then you do them much better. So... So some people do it with meditation, but a lot of people just do it with with being aware and mindful and skillful living and stopping self-criticism. Oh, that's such a big one. You know, um, I and so many others, uh, I feel like, struggle with that that feeling of not enough and just the inner critic, uh, no matter what, what I do. And and it's gotten much better with the self-work I've done over the years, uh, of it it was never good enough. And always, um, just getting into the mental loops of, um, self-criticism and, and how painful and debilitating that is for so many people, no matter how, you know, wealthy or genius they are, um, everyone can fall into those mental traps and the um, self-destructive patterns that uh, the mind can, can trap us in. So I really agree that you know, having greater mindfulness and spiritual practice and, and co- spiritual community to anchor us really in seeing our own true goodness and light and that everything is is okay right here, right now. And and then we begin to see the world that way too. And, and of course, it's easy to get into despair and, and rage about the destruction and the injustices that are happening now um and yet how do we be effective you know uh spiritual warriors basically and and creating the the practical um solutions and the more beautiful world um that we want that's the question right oh yeah and i love your use of the word warrior because uh I actually, well, in Buddhism, prayers are just may you or may I. And so one of the prayers I do um, often during the day is I just, may I be a warrior, may I be courageous to help change the world um, through an economic system that we want and we care for. And may I be wise in that way. And it's amazing how just stopping and saying a prayer like that to, to reinforce yourself just really helps me feel better. And then also if I'm having a lot of trouble focusing on what I'm doing because I'm feeling a bit 
upset with myself or others. I actually will just sit down and say, okay, I'm going to take a five minutes gratitude list and I'll just write down all the things that I did that I can think of recently to help other people, care for my family, care for whatever, or do great at work. I would just make a list of whatever I've been doing that really was good. And then that including the list of things I'm grateful for because a lot of the things that I'm able to do are things that I'm really grateful for. I'm so grateful for my family and my friends and, and my good job and living in a beautiful area. And so I, after about five minutes of that, Crystal, I'm astonished, first of all, at how much better I feel because instead of self-criticism, it's like just awareness of look at all the great things going on in my life and the ways that I'm trying to live a good life. And it really helps to just take that five minutes out, because for me it really stops a lot of those second arrows that I've been shooting at myself. Mm. Yes, yes. I really encourage listeners to do that, to, uh, to, you know, it's neuroscience is really backing this up, the power of uh, gratitude and, and our ability to really physically write down these things in the morning and the night, anytime right now, just to be able to shift our mind into more creative, expansive um, thinking. And uh, it's, it's really, really important to, uh, to focus like that. Um, oh, wow. Where to go now? Um, I, well, I liked your mentioning talking with others. Because I think that's just so important. Um, And I know many people think they don't have the time. Once again, we get back to where do I find that time. But, you know, you can can talk to others in some kind of your own group. Um, You can even do it in the evening. Hey, find a babysitter or get a partner to care for kids. Because it's so invigorating um, Mm -hmm. to come Mm -hmm. together with a group of people with shared values. In Buddhism, in Buddhism, they actually call it your sangha. It's just a group of people you trust with similar values that mean a lot to you. And to, it's your friendship group in some ways. Um, and that you can talk about the things that are hard for you to do, such as you know maybe save money or getting rid of debt on a credit card or it could even be, for a lot of women, it's how do I discipline my kids in a way that makes makes it all better without hurting them. It's like some really deep questions that we all struggle with that we don't really have the answers to. But even just sharing the stories or the ideas about how different how we try different things can help a lot. And so I hope some of you will even set up a book group to talk about Buddhist economics because it does bring up a lot of these questions um, that we're talking about now. Because, uh, as you might imagine, the book covers lots of different topics. Um, but they all center around improving our lives and helping us feel really great about the way we're living. And And it also, when you think the world outside of your house is really not doing well. Um, It also talks about how we live as a community, we live together, and that we can't just change the world by what we do. We all want to live 
and care about our own lives. But at some point, we have to come together and create the change that we want. And that that you have to do within a group uh, of friends, of sanghas. Of, it can be a political group, an environmental group, a gardening group. It can be any kind of group where if you have something you're working on to change for the better, it's amazing how much energy that gives you. I mean, you don't have to improve the whole world. You just have to bring some energy to one problem that you think is important. It could be related to your children's school. It could be related to something that you're already spending some time on. You just haven't figured out how to focus it yet. And so for me, my advice is focus it by joining a like-minded group that wants to work on that problem. And once you're in a group, then everybody has so many different talents and skills and knowledge that the group really bubbles together. The synergy is amazing. Um, So, for example, I work on the environmental group called 350 Bay Area, and we've really done a lot to change how we're we're, um, cleaning up the environment and the energy in California. And it feels great. But the people I'm working with are astonishing. I'm always so amazed at all their talents and skills. Um, And they need an economist, too, and they're so happy to have an economist. So I can just bring in what I know, but it really complements and pushes along what everyone else knows. And so working in a group like that on just one problem you care about really can re-energize you in terms of, when you every time you get a little down about oh what's happening in the world, hmm. you can actually ah. be doing something. I so agree, and I feel like it really taps into this human desire for belonging, and how strong that is. That we want to feel like we're making meaningful contributions, and we are valuable, and our unique gifts are being uh, given and received by others. And our modern market has really isolated people and felt people have people feeling like disposable commodities and uh, and that they're just consumers. And so to encourage people to really find belonging through uh, through connecting with others, through um, you know making finding your own passions and then and then being able to apply those in some way with a group of people in your community and really encouraging people um, yeah, not to spend so much time just consuming the mainstream messages and and the media and and the screens, but really um, being engaged face to face and what I've found, Claire, is just like we are so much wealthier than we even realize once we start talking to our neighbors and finding all the different offers and needs that people have. And this is a big passion. And in my work is creating community events that let people share their offers and needs and and really create, uh, uncover, unearth uh, some of this wealth that has has been kind of hidden by the modern market economy. Yes, Crystal, and that goes so far beyond what people can do online. It's like one of the things that I keep hearing from women and my students is, you know what, when I decided I needed more time to spend with people and the community in a group, such as the groups you just mentioned, you know what I did? I really made myself spend much less time online. 
and be out in the real world. And they said it was astonishing how much better that was. I learned more. I interacted more. I created friendships. I made my life much better um, in terms of who am I and what am I doing. And I felt like not only was I belonging, but I was contributing. And that was something they had totally missed being online all the time. They said I was way too isolated, and I didn't understand what I was missing. So what you just said really resonates with what I've heard from others. Mm. Right. There's such a um, different kind of connection that we have eBay and Craigslist and these online exchanges and Facebook, and and yet, you know, the magic that happens when people are face-to-face and, and really opening up and sharing authentically and vulnerably and being able to connect with other humans and look in their eyes is, is something totally different and and very necessary for our well-being, uh, <laughs> right? Yes, it's, it's such a deeper experience. It's actually a very human experience um, that you just can't replicate online. Hmm. So... I'm really, really happy that your show and what you do really helps people do that. Mm, yes. Yeah. And if people want to find out about this process, you can go to um, offersandneeds.com and we're um, creating a guidebook for facilitators to run these Offers and Needs Markets events. And uh, gosh, I wish we could talk for another hour, but um, we are coming near to the end here. Um, yeah. and so can I also mention that I hope listeners yeah. will go to my website called BuddhistEconomics.net because it has a lot of information there, um, including the reading, the reading book guide. And uh, then they could, you know, keep continuing thinking about it. And it would be great if they bought and read my book and let me know what they think about it. Yes, I so recommend uh, Claire's book. I just feel like she is so, it's so accessible, like the way that you share about personal transformation, but also, as you said, so much more about this economy that we're participating in and and getting a better understanding and uh, greater wisdom about our own place in the world and, and how we can affect the change that is most important for us and that we really want to see. So I feel like it's a great um, resource for people looking for um, some shift in their own life and how they can make more meaningful impact in the world. Hmm. So thank you. I mean, and I hope I, I hope I hear from some of your listeners. And um, it's, I just love what you're doing. I love the whole idea of money-wise women and empowered mm. women because um, women have so much to offer the world, and now we're doing it. It's like, yes. <laughs> mm. So here in, you know, um, you are a feminine leader and pioneer in this masculine field, and I've noticed that you have, you know, won these recognitions and created these innovative projects and the index um, that that are more holistic, that are cross-disciplinary. And, uh, you know, in the last five minutes or so here, uh, is there anything you'd like to say 
maybe briefly explaining what those were and, and how you feel like um, anything about your leadership as a woman. Right. Well, one thing about being in a male field is being a woman takes a lot of courage, but that's okay. The first thing you do is you find other women and you group together. That helped me a lot. I really pushed that. But then the other thing is that one of the one of the nice things about women is we've learned not to take things personally. So in this male field, everybody's jumping on each other. And I just laughed at one guy who felt terrible because he got bad reviews. I said, don't take that personally. I said, you know, these people are being overly competitive and just trying to push you around. So the nice thing about being a woman is I don't take that personally. I I know that um, a lot of the criticism or a lot of the power plays are around what men are trying to do. So it actually makes it much easier to just laugh at it and say, oh, forget that. That's not what I want to engage in. But let's talk about economic performance for a minute because it's so near and dear to my heart. It's chapter six of my book. But basically, actually every economist knows we really don't want to measure economic performance just by average income because that ignores so many of the things that are an important part of life. It also ignores inequality. It ignores environmental degradation. It ignores all the work we do outside of the marketplace and caring for families, volunteer work. It ignores the value of our leisure time. It ignores everything we care about except consumption. But the problem is, all economists will tell you this, whatever you focus on to measure, which in this case is consumption and income, that becomes your goal in life. So part of the problem is by just measuring consumption and income, we're overemphasizing that in our lives. And it's not helping people feel better. And meanwhile, it's actually really hurting the economy in terms of the environment and the way we live. So we could do a whole lot better. And that's one of the reasons I've worked a lot on a holistic measurement of economic performance that brings in all the things that we think are important and care about so that then we have a much more sort of holistic and broad-minded and meaningful way of thinking, how well is our economy performing? And uh, eventually, I really hope we get there in using one of these measurements. Hmm. Me too. It's, it's so essential to have these conversations, to have better metrics, to really, I mean, people don't realize how much the economy and the, the design of this system and this game called the economy is influencing human behavior and how we really do need uh, an updated sense that isn't uh, of what economics is that isn't so based on mechanical uh, diagrams from the 1800s and, and things like this. So I feel like <laughs> it's so essential to re reimagine the economy, right? Yes, yes. And, and so we do need a measurement that we can live with and, and think is actually telling us something that's useful, and we need it as a guideline. As you said, we're not going to get off the materialistic treadmill unless we measure things differently. Mm. Yes. Yeah, and is it uh, Bhutan that has the gross happiness product? Yes, they call it gross national happiness. 
and it's embedded in everything they do. They, I was just there delivering a paper on it, and um, it's a beautiful but small country. But we have, we have actually, there are lots of possible measurements. You'll love Chapter Six if you're interested in this topic. Um, so we, the problem is we aren't using any of them. We still just measure income. So we need to push ahead and say, okay, it's time to try other measurements and actually do them. Um, and we can. We absolutely can. Oh, yes. I, I, love, um, I love your decades of, of experience, and you are such a um, forward-thinking realist. Like, I just really appreciate how you have grounded these spiritual truths in your work in the academic setting, that you are traveling the world, uh, really applying these these ideas. And, uh, gosh, talking to you just makes me feel like, yes, there is hope. (laughs) There is very real uh, opportunities for humanity. As you said, we can do better. And, um, oh, what a delightful conversation. I just really appreciate your perspective. And, and if you'd like to share any closing thoughts here in the next minute or two, uh, you're welcome to. Well, Crystal, first of all, thank you for your podcast. I find them inspiring and empowering. And one of the things that I suggest that we do during the day is we actually have some Buddhist prayers to to remind us, like one of the ones I say often during the day is, may we heal the earth as we heal ourselves. And it really brings me back to the moment and to the appreciation of what's going on around me. And especially when I walk outside, I'll say that. May we heal the earth as we heal ourselves. And it means that all together we can, we can love and care for one, about one another and we can love and care for Mother Earth as she supports us through the ages. And when we do that, things will really improve for everyone, including ourselves. Hmm. Hmm. Wow. Letting, inviting listeners to, to feel the peace that is available right now to us in this very moment and feeling your own power, your own incredible wealth as you tap into this spiritual connection, your breath, your body, and and just really uh, feeling that you are enough and and finding the peace in that and and from that wellspring of of well-being that um you know greater wealth and prosperity and connection and and a meaningful life will um be manifest in the in the outer outer world and uh gosh i just um so appreciate all that you shared today claire and uh really encourage people to check out your book and you can find that and order it at buddhisteconomics.net and uh also click the click the link in the post and um yeah just really encourage people to get together with some friends discuss the book get inspired and and find the support uh to really blossom into your 
wealthiest, uh, most beautiful expression. Thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom here today, Claire. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, the biggest compliment you can give us is to subscribe to the show and rate and review our podcast at iTunes. Be sure to visit www.moneymorphosis.com. That's money-m-o-r-p-h-o-s-i-s.com to join the growing community of empowered women who are dedicated to creating the true wealth they deserve.